So it's great to be back with all of you last, uh, this, this, this day, actually. And so really grateful for Pastor Weezy preaching last week as well. Man, that was a fantastic sermon. And if you haven't listened to it, man, I invite you to go listen to it. And um, yeah, it, it was just really good. Uh, one line, flies on pie. Flies on pie. There it is. There it is. Great. Uh, better than anything else that flies could be on. Amen? So, uh, we're continuing our series this morning through the book, at least the first part of the book of Revelation. And really, this first part of the book of Revelation, the seven specific messages to the seven specific churches that uh, the book of Revelation is, um, at least the first part, John is addressing to the very words of Jesus himself that John is sharing. And really for us, as we are looking at these messages, and we're in the third week of this series in the first part of the book of Revelation, and we have been looking at ways that we can make shifts if we need to in our own lives, and maybe even collectively as a church. And we have been looking at ways in which we can go about making those kinds of shifts. And we looked at from the first week from, from passiveness to passion, and last week from fear to boldness, and today we're going to be taking a look at what it means for us to be able to shift from compromise to conviction. Now, let me just say this right off the bat. Um, Probably if I asked you a question right now, what is the first thing that comes to mind when you think of the word compromise? Chances are maybe what comes to mind are images or thoughts that maybe aren't necessarily kind towards that word compromise. We hear it all the time that compromise is not good. And in fact, preparing for the message this morning, it was really fascinating to try to look up, um, you know, researching biblical ideas or perspectives on compromise. And most, almost all of the examples, almost all of the things I found when it came to this idea of compromise, particularly when it comes to uh, how we work it out in the church, how we work it out in our faith, was all negative. Was all negative. And so chances are, if I mention that word compromise, perhaps we might be tempted to think the same thing, that compromise is a dirty word, that compromise is not a good thing, that compromise has no place in our lives. And to that, I would say to anyone who says compromise is not good, compromise is bad, compromise has no place here, I would just want to say chances are one of two things, either you have never been married, or if you are married, we probably need to talk. <laughs> Counseling might be in order. Um, here's the question. Does the Bible at all talk about compromise in a way that is good? In, in other words, are there areas in which we should compromise? And the answer to that question is yes. There are examples of Scripture sharing with us areas in which we might want to compromise. I don't have it on the screen but I want to just point to you a few of, pa- of these passages that the scriptures actually kind of share a little bit about compromise in the context in which it does talk about compromise. First one is Proverbs chapter 25, verses 8 through 10, and it says this, Do not go out hastily to argue your case. Otherwise, what will you do in the end when your neighbor humiliates you? Argue your case with your neighbor and do not reveal the secret of another. Or one who hears it will put you to shame, and the evil report about you will not pass away. Here's the other one, Luke chapter 12, and these are the words of Jesus speaking almost in in many ways very similar to what we just read in Proverbs here. But Luke chapter 12, verses 58 through 59, Jesus says the following as he says about compromise. He says this, For when you are going with your accuser to appear before the magistrate on the way, make an effort to settle with him so that he does not drag you before the judge, and the judge hand you over to the officer, and the officer throw you into prison. For I tell you, you will not get out of there until you have paid up the very last lepton. Interesting. In other words, there are times that maybe we, even as followers of Jesus Christ, ought to compromise. That we ought to settle. By the way, I think both these passages really relate to the fact of that we really ought to settle if we're guilty if we're at fault, if we're the ones. I mean, these passages, both Proverbs and Luke, often indicate the sense that, you know what, if we go, chances are uh, we're going to be, you know, all this stuff is going to come out, all this stuff is going to happen, all this stuff, and you know what, 
uh, let's just see what, if we can just settle this right here, right now, right? I learned this early on. Um, when I was living in Wisconsin, our house that we bought, um, one day in an October rainy day, which was not unusual in Wisconsin to have, in fact, that's usually when we usually get a lot of changes in the weather, and uh, raining like today here, um, is that one day um, our roof began to leak. And it turned out that, well, that's unusual. The, loop, the, the roof is leaking. We knew that um, it had been replaced. Um, and so we called uh, a roofer to come out, and he just, he didn't even have to go on the roof at all. He just was walking up. It was a, we had owned a one-story house, and he knew immediately, well, that roof was not professionally done. He just knew immediately the way the shingles were laid. And further investigating all that kind of stuff is that all of a sudden we found out that, yeah, the roof was replaced. They did it themselves and did not do a very good job, they being the previous homeowners. So we got advice. What are we supposed to do? Well, get an attorney. So we got an attorney because we thought, well, we're going to have to somehow figure this out and settle it. But here's what happened, which is really interesting, is we're believers. The people we bought the house from was belie were believers. They really did what was something that was very unique. They came over to our house, just them, and they talked with us. They brought us gifts for our kids. Very smart. They brought gifts for our kids. And they sat with us in the living room, and they said, how can we make this right? And we settled. Without ever having to do anything legal or anything else, we compromised. There are times where compromise is okay. There are times when compromising is not bad. There are times even, and ask anybody who has been married, I shared that before, I'll share it again, compromise may even be necessary. Compromise isn't always bad. Let me just say that from the outset. However, there are times when compromising is not good or healthy or even appropriate. That is what we're going to look at today. We're going to look at an example of when compromising is not good, when it is not appropriate. In fact, dare I say, when it is even dangerous to compromise. Now, let me just say this. We live in a hyper, in case you didn't know this, I'm not hopefully sharing anything new with all of you today, we live in a society that is just hyper, hypersensitive. Amen? Anything that we say can be perceived in the wrong way. Anything we do can be perceived in the wrong way. Anything, anything, it doesn't matter. And particularly for us as followers of Jesus, it is really, really potentially tough. It is really, really being watched over by others about how we respond, how we act, what we say, etc., etc., etc. And so we live in a very hypersensitive culture where it is very easy for us immediately to go to our corners and stay there and not in any way give an inch to anyone about anything. And I want to be careful about this, that we understand that there are times that we can compromise and it's okay. And there are times when it's not okay to compromise. And so you might be asking yourself, Dan, what are those times when it's okay not to compromise? Oh, you've asked the wrong question. Rather, ask yourself when it's okay to compromise. And we'll answer that question this way. It's okay to compromise right off the bat here when it doesn't in any way, in, in any way, kind of, uh, uh, in many ways, put your character at risk or put your identity at risk or put your morals at risk or your ethics at risk. I've said this before, and I'll say it again. I may not have said it to all of you, but I've said it to plenty of you, I believe. For me, the field in which I play on, and we all play on fields, whether we know it or not, some fields that people play on are small. In other words, it doesn't take long to you know, kind of rub up against those boundaries. Other fields that people play on are much larger. I'll say this. The field I play on, and I am willing to compromise, as long as it doesn't, uh, as long as it doesn't uh, cause me to, uh, you know, violate my ethics, my morals, that is not unbiblical or is illegal. Those four things. If it doesn't in any way infringe on those four things, well, let's talk. Let's talk. So this morning, we are going to look at what does it look like for us to not compromise on those kinds of things? 
those things that we should never have compromised, but maybe we have. What does it look like for us to be able to shift back to where maybe we have compromised on those things that we never should have compromised on, where it has now impugned or has ruined potentially our character or has caused us to be in some sort of moral quandary, or more than that, has somehow um, violated our faith in Jesus Christ and what he commands us to do. How do we begin to shift back from those times that we maybe we have compromised back to conviction once again? That's what we're going to look at today. And let me just say this. If you are here today and you have ever found yourself having compromised in a way that has been negative, in a way that has, in many ways, you know, violated your identity, violated what God has commanded you to do, violated your morals or your ethics, or maybe even has gone to the point of even illegality. Let me just say this. Um, you are not a lost cause. You are not a lost cause. And it's never too late to shift back again to conviction. And we're going to take a look in Revelation today, in this passage out of Revelation chapter 2, three things that I see in this passage that can help us shift back from compromise to conviction. Remember, what we're specifically talking about is a compromise in which we never should have done in the first place. And then making that shift back to where we should be. All right, does that make sense? So, starting number one here. Number one out of three ways that we can shift back from compromise to conviction. The first one is this, reveal it reveal it. Now let me read for you out of Revelation chapter 2, beginning with verse 12, and Jesus says these words, and these are his words as communicated to the Apostle John. And the angel of the Lord in, of the church in Pergamum writes, the one who has the sharp two-edged sword says this. Now two things real quick. Remember, as we started off this series, it's really interesting. To the angel of the Lord, as we said, or to the angel of this church, as we said at the beginning of the series, the angel could mean several different things. It could mean the pastor of that church, which I like. Um, uh, or it could mean an angel, actual angel, heavenly being, that that angel is over that church. Uh, it, it could mean either one of those things or even something completely different. Regardless, here is what is interesting too, is that every message that we have looked at so far, the two previous ones and this one today, to the seven churches. It is so interesting the way that each one is approached uniquely by Jesus. In this case, Jesus says, the one who has a sharp two-edged sword says this. A sharp two-edged sword basically implies the following. Encouragement and discipline. Encouragement and discipline. The sword cuts two ways or both ways. It can encourage and it can also correct or discipline. And we are going to see both of these here in this message that Jesus shares with this church. Now, real quick, the church in Pergamum, Pergamum was a city in western Turkey on the shores of the Aegean Sea. It was built on a, a cliff or a, a hill of like a thousand foot high hill there, okay? Just beautiful. Let me just show you that there's a picture of it right there. You can just see the elevation of that, of the surrounding area. Thousand feet up. So it had prominence. Okay? It had prominence. This is what Jesus says. This is the encouragement part. I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is. We'll talk about that in just a minute. And you hold, hold firmly to my name and did not deny my faith even in the days of Antipas, my witness, my faithful one, who was killed among you where Satan dwells. Now here comes the correction. But I have a few things against you. Because you have some there who hold to the teaching of Balaam, who kept teaching Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel, to eat things, sacrifice to idols, and to commit sexual immorality. So you too have some in the same way who have hold to the teaching of the Nicolaitans. All right? What is going on here? The thing that Jesus does here is the thing that we need to do well is that this church is doing so many things well. First of all, Satan, or Jesus says to the church, I know where you're living. I know your context. I know what is going on. I know what you are up against. You are in this beautiful you know, hillside city on the coast of the Aegean Sea in modern-day Turkey, and yet 
there you are. And not only that, I know that you are contending with other things there that are very much going to try to erode your faith in me. That not only are you there, that you are now also where the throne of Satan is. And some of us might be thinking, is that where Satan actually dwells? I mean, you know, God dwells in Jerusalem and Satan dwells here. No, that's not the point, okay? Satan, in this case, can be used in many different ways or applied to many different things, right? Jesus said to Peter, get thee behind me. I always go to King James on that. Um, Don't know why. Get thee behind me. It just sounds more powerful, doesn't it? More authoritative, Um, Yeah, don't go too far with that. I'm still not preaching out of the King James. Get thee behind me what? Does that mean Peter is Satan? No. So it is not the actual physical location of Satan's throne. Let's just stop right there. Why in the world does Jesus say that that is the throne of Satan? Perhaps a few reasons why. One is, is that Pergamum was because of its unique location, its elevation, and where it was was just a beautiful opportunity for some unbelievable idolatry to take place and for unbelievable, beautiful temples to be built. And so there were several temples that were built there. One of them was to the temple uh, to the god of Zeus. And let me just show you a picture of what that temple looked like here. It was a beautiful, huge temple. Huge. The temple of Zeus. Not only that, in addition to all of these mythical gods and everything else that these temples would have been there. Pergamum was one of the first cities in which he erected a temple to the emperor himself. That the emperor of Rome could be worshipped there. Now, in my opinion, when it says the throne of Satan is there, some, some theologians believe that could be Zeus or some other god that was, that was temple was there. I believe also it could have been the emperor himself, which I think the book of Revelation points to. The whole 666. Uh, I believe that is all about Nero's uh, reign as emperor and all that kind of stuff. And so I believe when he is talking about the throne of Satan, that he is particularly talking about the emperor himself and that the emperor has a temple there in which people worship the emperor. That is my own personal opinion. All right? You might have other opinions. You're wrong, but you might have them. Okay? (laughs) Um, And so here they are. They're in this absolutely unbelievably godless city that was not in any way very much dedicated to God. And on top of that, this is what Jesus says, and you did not deny my faith even in the days of Antipas, my witness, my faith one, who was killed among you where Satan dwells. In other words, Antipas is oftentimes somewhat considered to be one of the first, if not the first Christian martyred. And he was martyred in this city. So not only are they in a city where all of a sudden now they are, they are just in this context of this all sorts of different gods that are worshipped, but they're in a city where they are being persecuted. Perhaps the earliest, if not the very first Christian who was ever martyred was martyred in this city, and Jesus knows it. Let me just say this, brothers and sisters. Jesus knows where we dwell. Jesus knows where our church is. Jesus knows the context in which our church is doing ministry. Jesus knows all of this. He knows it. And yet he still has called us here. He knows it. And he is aware of it. And he is deeply involved in it. Jesus knows where we dwell. The same thing as he knows where this church is. And what Jesus does in this passage is he says, guess what? I know it, but here are the few things I have against you. And then he begins to reveal or call out the things that they have allowed to come into their church. And it's two specific things. And he says this. The first one is this. There are some there who hold to the teaching of Balaam, who kept teaching Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel, to eat things, sacrifice to idols, and to commit sexual immorality. Now this goes back to the book of Numbers, and that this is a, a, an event that happened early on in Israel's history, in which the Israels were traveling through, and Balak, who was the king of Moab at that time, decides, you know what, I've heard stories about the Israelites, I've heard that they do unbelievable things, their God is all-powerful, and it's not going to be good, they're headed our way, this is not good, uh, I, 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 let me tell you, let me do this, and this is quite unique about a king to do this. I'm going to search out a prophet among them 
who I could hire that I could maybe pay that prophet to curse the people of Israel. Hadn't been tried before. Balaam was that prophet. And so Balak hires Balaam and says to Balaam, hey, I need you to go up on this hill and I need you to curse the people of Israel for me. Okay? Can, you are an Israelite. You're a prophet of the Israelites. Um, would you go up there and, and I'll give you money. Would you go ahead and curse them so that they do not take us over? That they do not conquer us? And we know the story, right? Balaam and his donkey, right? He gets on his donkey. The donkey won't go any further because there's an angel of the Lord there with a sharp sword. By the way, I was doing some research on this. Anybody know what the gender of the donkey was? It was a female. (laughs) Women, you know your stuff. You see things men can't. (laughs) Women are oftentimes more discerning sometimes than even men. The donkey saw this angel. I don't know why it was some Jewish... Uh, 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 stuff I was researching, and it just, it just had mentioned, by the way, the, the, the gender of the donkey was a female. Oh, okay, great, good to know. So ladies, there you go. You saw things before Balaam ever could, not unusual, or before men could ever see. Have you ever said that to your husbands, wives? When your husband decided to want to do something, you thought, this is not going to be a good thing, don't do this, this is probably what's going to happen, and they do it anyways, and what happens? I told you so, right? I told you so. Um, Anyways, regardless, that's not the point of this. Let's move right along. So he's not able to curse. God says to Balaam, no, no, you're not going to curse my people. You're going to do exactly what I tell you to do, okay? And so he doesn't curse him. However, here is what Balaam does do is after all of this event has happened, Balaam decides to live in Moab. And what he does do is he tells the king, King Balak, how to trip up the people of Israel. And he says this, I can't curse them for you, but I can teach you how you can create for them a stumbling block so that they would eventually commit idolatry, and that way God will curse them. And that's exactly what he does. You know how he did it? He tells the king, guess what? Allow your women to marry the Israelite men. And what will happen is that all of a sudden now, their lives will be joined together, and that all of a sudden now, as oftentimes happen when two lives come together, is that all of a sudden there's compromise that takes place. I've talked about this before, right? And this is why the scriptures talk about do not get married if you're unequally yoked. Stuff like this can happen, okay? And all of a sudden now, the women of Moab began to tempt the Israelite men and saying, listen, listen, I worship these gods. Let's go to my church. Let's go to my church and let's worship my gods and let's do things my way. Sure, why not? And so they began to worship the gods of Moab. And as a result, they now had a stumbling block. They now compromised themselves. They now are no longer worshiping the God of Israel, but now are worshiping the gods of Moab, they now have compromised in a way that was very dangerous, unhealthy, and in the end, very destructive. That's bad compromise. Jesus says, those teachings are coming into this church. There are some among you who are coming into this and are believing that we should eat food sacrificed to idols as part of our worship and that we should commit sexual immorality as part of our worship of the gods in this city. And not only that, number two, the second thing that was happening was that there were some who had held to the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Verse 15, so you too have some who in the same way hold to the teaching of the Nicolaitans. I shared this two weeks ago, I'll share it with you again, is that the Nicolaitans descended from a gentleman, Nicolai, Nicolai, who was one of the original deacons that was appointed by the apostles themselves to care for the widows. And there were teachings that eventually came out of this group, not maybe from him directly, but nonetheless, that said basically, yes, you can still indulge in the uh, or the, the passions of the flesh, if you will, and still worship Jesus Christ. You can still have it both ways. You can have your cake and eat it too. Who wouldn't like to have that deal? Right? Who wouldn't like to have that? And so these two things were coming into the church. And as a result, 
Christians at this church were now compromising their worship and their, and their obedience to Jesus Christ in favor of worshiping in ways that were absolutely contrary to how Jesus said, you should worship me. That kind of compromise can't happen. It was giving a picture of who Jesus is that was absolutely inaccurate. It was giving an idea of who Jesus is and the worship of Jesus that was not true. That was, in fact, very opposite, a lie. An absolute lie. You know what the amazing thing about these two controversies and most likely things that come into the church, whether it's here or elsewhere, is that oftentimes it is not the outside that is the most threatening to the church. It's what comes from within that is. These two beliefs didn't come from non-Christians into this church. It came from Christians who were already in this church who introduced these practices. The greatest threat, I believe, in the church, the greatest threat to you and I, even individually, is not external, but internal. It is not external, it's internal. And do you know what? Almost always, we as individuals, and even us as a church, almost always look for threats. Where do we look for them? Outside. External. Always external. No, no. Almost always, they're internal. C.S. Lewis in his book, The Screwtape Letters, which is a fictional account of how demons kind of trip up human beings. And a guy, a demon by the name of Screwtape is writing to one of his nephews about how we work and how we do this stuff. He says the following about controversy and compromise and how he introduces kind of stumbling blocks among Christians. He says this, Indeed, the safest road to hell is the gradual one. The gentle slope, soft underfoot, without sudden turnings, without milestones, without signposts. Do you know how a fall happens? Do you know how a controversy happens? Do you know how wrong beliefs get introduced into the church or into a church? You know how a church begins to go off track, how a Christian begins to go off track? Very slowly. Over time, a gentle slope. It's not all of a sudden. It's a very methodical, slow-turning process. That's how it happens. And before you even know it, you found yourself in a position you never thought you would ever find yourself in. Before you know it, you have found yourself compromising who you are, compromising your moral and your ethics, and you never thought you would ever be there. It happens gradually. The same thing here at this church. The controversies they were dealing with just didn't pop up one day. It happened over time, a gradual slope. And what Jesus does here is he calls it out. He reveals it. He says, this is what's going on, and this is wrong. This is what you have believed in, and it's wrong. He calls it out. That's the very first thing. The second thing Jesus says here, and that we should do too if we want to shift from compromise to conviction, is this. Renounce it. Turn away from it. Repent of it. Jesus says this in verse 16 of Revelation chapter 2. Therefore, repent, or else I am coming to you quickly, and I will wage war against them with the sword of my mouth. Now, I love what he says there. I will wage war with them. Them being those who have brought in these false beliefs. Them being those who have gone in there and have corrupted this church. Them being those who, you know, regardless of what their motivation may have been, regardless of what their desires may be, have now turned people who once followed Jesus, now are beginning to turn them away from him. He is going to wage war against them and with what? His mouth. And as we saw at the beginning here, it is a sharp, two-edged sword. Now, just real careful. Just be careful and just before we think, well, that's it with his mouth. That's it. Remember, we're talking about Jesus here, the Word of God. When Jesus speaks, things happen. Okay? When, when Jesus speaks, all the way from Genesis 1, 
God said, let there be light. Guess what happened when God said, let there be light? Jesus went to work. John 1.1, 1, 1, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with Him. Nothing that has been made has been made without Jesus Christ. We might think that's rather weak, but let me just say this, brothers and sisters, the Word of God is absolutely powerful. It can condemn people. It can save people. It can restore people. It can send people away. It can do both and everything in between. The Word of God is powerful. Absolutely powerful. If it isn't powerful, then why are we even spending time in this book? If we don't believe that this book can change people's lives, not just because it's you know, the Bible and we can touch it and feel it and not because it's infused with paper and words and not because Jesus' words are in red as in our mind, which mine is the correct version of this. So, right? Because Jesus' words are in red. Not because it's filled with a concordance or maps or anything else like that. It's because the Spirit of Jesus, the Holy Spirit whom He sent, has now, as 2 Timothy 3.16 says, has now brought this book to life. And it is powerful. If I were to ask you all, how many of you have been convicted by what this book has said? How many of you have been comforted and encouraged by what this book has said? How many of you have found salvation because of what this book said where you could find it? How many of you have had your lives absolutely transformed because of what this book has said? I get teary-eyed just thinking about it. You know what the greatest tragedy is? This is the all-time best-selling book ever in the history of humanity and most likely the least read. This book is powerful. And so when Jesus says, I wage war with my mouth, let's do not think that, boy, Jesus, I wish you would do something more. Bring that sword. Bring that sword. Bring that, bring that two-by-four, man. Get in there. Bring that whip. I love that whip that you used at the temple to clean out the temple there. Can you bring that? No, 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 no. When he says, I wage war with my mouth, trust me, it's going to be tough. It's going to be a cleansing. It's going to get finished. It's going to happen. Jesus says, I will wage war with them with the sword of my mouth. But before that, he says, repent. Turn away from it. Get away from it. Run away from it. Do not indulge it. Get it out. Do not in any way give it any more air. Get it out. Get away from it. Don't indulge in it. Don't worship it. Don't follow it, etc., etc., etc. Get it out of this church. Do it now. Renounce it. Turn away from it. And then the third one is this. Resist it. Verse 17. The one who has an ear, Jesus says, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who overcomes, I will give some of the hidden manna, and I will give him a white stone and a new name written on the stone, which no one knows except the one who receives it. In other words, Jesus says to this church, not only should you call it out, reveal it, not only should you repent of it, but now what you should do is resist it because just because you got rid of it once doesn't mean it won't make its way back in again. Just because you got, you know, got rid of it this time doesn't mean it's not going to come around next time. And by the way, if it's not that issue, it's going to be something else that's going to try to come in and try to get us off track or compromise who we are as a church. Don't let it happen. Resist, resist, resist. Be on the lookout. And by the way, be on the lookout internally, not necessarily externally, because it comes from within. And it happens over time. Resist, resist, resist. Here is the problem that we as Christians need to understand, is yes, we understand that as Christians, we face persecution, whatever that looks like. And Weezy, I think, was absolutely right last week when she talked about persecution for us as Christians in this country. It's really not persecution, as opposed to Christians in other countries that really do face persecution. But we do know that we face an enemy who is absolutely intent on tripping us up. And I'll give you an example in just a little bit about how I think the enemy has done it here, because he has. 
Not just in this church, but I'm talking churches in general. Because he has. I'll get there in just a minute. But we need to resist. We know that temptation is always present. We know that there are things that are always wanting to try to trip us up, that Satan is out there trying to trip us up. And we need to call it out when we are tempted to compromise who we are in Jesus. And we need to call that out, reveal it. We need to repent of it. And then we need to continue to resist it. How do we resist? This is a good place to start. Us meeting together is a really good place to start. Really good place to start. We need to resist it. Just because we have revealed it, renounced it, doesn't mean it won't come back. As I thought about this passage this morning, as I thought about what Jesus was saying to this church in Pergamum, as I thought about what it is that Jesus was communicating and how we as Christians can be so easily compromised, how we as Christians can be so easily tripped up, how we as Christians can so easily find ourselves in places that we never thought we would find ourselves in, I thought, where in the world do we see this today in churches? Weezy touched on it a little bit last week, and I want to go a little bit further this week. In one big way that I believe that we as churches here in this country have really been compromised, whether we realize it or not, is this idea of Christian nationalism. Nationalism. The idea that America and the church are one and the same. The idea that America is supposed to be the last bastion of hope for Christianity. And therefore, as Christians, we should deserve a privileged position in this country above everyone else who is not a Christian. That we deserve to have a privileged position of authority because America is the last bastion of hope for Christianity in this world. That this country was created for that specific purpose and that there is no distinction to be made between the government of this country and the religion of this country. They are one and the same. What a dangerous, dangerous thing. And there are churches in this country who not only support that, they preach it, they absolutely encourage it, and they are reveling in it. without understanding the full implications of what that means. That we understand and we believe that as Christians, we've got to fight the good fight, that our morals and our, our country are being compromised, that somehow we are all of a sudden, we've got to get out there and we've got to fight as Christians. We've got to protect our beliefs. We've got to protect the church as though Jesus Christ needs our help fighting. And in that, we justify doing things to other people who may not be Christians, who may not look like us, who may not act like us, who may not believe the same things as we do. And we go around and we justify doing horrible things to them. I was in Northern California bunch of kids, yahoos, as I think Dennis calls them. <laughs> that must be a professional police term. <laughs> bunch of yahoos saw a gentleman wearing a turban. And they got out of their car and beat him up. He was a Sikh, not a Muslim. And I don't care if he was a Muslim or not. It's not right. To see Christians married to white nationalists White supremacists is wrong. Let me just tell you a little history about the Brethren Church. If there's one issue we have been consistent on almost our entirety of existence in this country, it is that we will not tolerate, support, or in any way fight for a system of slavery in this country. Or treating people with different ethnicities or religious beliefs as second-class citizens. That is not the Jesus way. 
And yet we as Christians, I'm afraid evangelical Christians, have bought into a, a picture of the fact that this could be a Christian nation. And it has seeped into the churches. And it has seeped into things about entertaining wild conspiracy theories. Aren't we about truth? Aren't we about truth? Did we not just have some audit done in Maricopa County that was kind of the joke of the nation for a while there, and they came out with results that said something that we pretty much already knew? And yet that doesn't stop people from indulging in continuing... Yeah, I don't have to finish that sentence. What a joke. What a joke. One man's ego is bruised, and he wants to take the country down with him. Move on. Move on. That's enough. There comes a point when you say, child, enough. This is not right. When we say truth is truth, and we look at what is going on around the nation, and we look at states in which they say, well, if we can't win elections just by the sheer message of our, of our, of our platform, then let's try to discourage those from voting who might not vote with us. I don't know about you, but if it looks like voter suppression, smells like voter suppression, it's probably voter suppression. And churches are falling for this stuff. Churches are falling for this. And you know what? Pastors, one of two things are happening with pastors. I know one pastor who just upped and quit. You know why? The pastor said, I get an hour on Sunday with my church. And the rest of the week, they get MSNBC, Fox News, whatever, and they get that 24-7. I can't compete. I get an hour on Sunday to share with them what I think God's perspective is from the scriptures, and I can't compete. Or number two, and this is probably even worse, they say nothing because they don't want to anger anybody. They don't want to lose anybody. They don't want anybody to leave their church. And so they say things, well, we don't talk about politics here. Sure. We don't talk about politics when it's inconvenient, but we'll certainly talk about it when it is, when it's safe to do so. I realize what I'm saying is a risk, but I honestly believe that this came from within. This is not an external threat. This didn't come from some foreign country. This is an internal thing that has now come into the churches. This has happened. And we have compromised our witness for Jesus Christ as a result. If you want to know why some people or many people don't want to come to church, they look out at what churches are doing, what pastors are saying, what other Christians are saying and doing and acting, and they say, if, that would, if that's who Jesus is, I want nothing to do with him. And you know what I say to that? Amen. I want nothing to do with him either if that's who Jesus is. Period. If, here, you want to know if you've compromised yourself? If you come away hating your neighbor, you've compromised your witness for Jesus. If you've come away hating your leaders, you've compromised your witness for Jesus. You know what the sad reality is? is the vast majority of one political party doesn't believe our current president who was elected was rightfully elected. I don't care. The Bible says this. I'm to honor my leaders. I don't care. I'm going to do that. I don't care. Because that's what Jesus says to do. You know what Jesus' weapons are? I can guarantee you they are not guns. They are not flags that are used against others. They are none of that stuff. Do you know what Jesus' weapons are? How can I serve you? How can I love you? How can I pray for you? How can I come alongside you and help you? His weapons are weapons 
of faith, prayer, love, compassion. Do you realize that we are in such a point right now that I actually heard pastors talking about the sin of empathy? That we are in danger of empathizing too much and letting people, you know, seriously? Now, I'll be honest with you, I'm a cold-hearted guy sometimes. I'm German. I have no problem with that. <laughs> if I emote, it's, it's got to be a pretty big thing. But for crying out loud, I'd, I'll tell you what, I'd rather, I'd rather err on the side of empathy than not. I'd rather err on the side of empathy than not. I'd rather err on the side of compassion and mercy than not. That's where I'd want to err on. I'd rather err on the side of love and grace than not. Because you know what? That's Jesus' default position. It's just sad that we look at stuff, threats to our country, and we say, well, this can't happen. This can't be. It's going to take down our country. It may. I don't know. But here's what I do know. The answer isn't Christian nationalism. That's not the answer. You know what the answer is? Jesus Christ. It saddens me that there are people who go out there and and cut open water bottles and water containers and stuff for, for illegal immigrants or otherwise who are trying to make it over to this country. Well, they shouldn't be coming over. I get that, but that's beside the point. The greater tragedy isn't the fact that they're coming over. You know what the greater tragedy is? Is that when they get here, some Yahoo went up there and cut their water or whatever, so now they die out in the desert without anybody there to care for them. That's a child of God. I don't care if they came over illegally. As a child of God, loved more deeply by him than you and I could ever imagine because we are also loved by him more than we could ever imagine. How dare we? How dare we? If we really think about it, what we are really doing is putting our politics ahead of our faith. We're putting our country, or what we believe our country should be like, ahead of what the kingdom of God is to be like. I don't know about you, but I'm a Christian first, follower of Jesus first, an American second, and I'm proud to be both. But if I mix up those two, bad things can happen. Okay, I'm done. <laughs> For now. Um... Except to say this. <laughs> How have we compromised our witness, church? How have you and I individually compromised our witness? In just a few moments, we're going to take communion. I can't think of a better way than to understand Christian identity than to take the body and the blood symbolized in the cup and the bread of Jesus Christ. The one who gave his all was willing to lose himself for us, for our sake, and he calls us to do the same. Church, how have we compromised our witness? Let's spend a few moments right now confessing. We don't do a lot of that, but I think we should do more of it as a church. Confess, confess, confess that we have compromised when we never should have, that we have found ourselves in a place that we never thought we would be in, but here we are. Father, we confess this morning as your people, as your brothers and sisters, that we have sinned, and we have sinned greatly. That maybe we too have gotten caught up in what is taking place and has taken place in our country. And the lives that have been wrecked the lives that have been damaged, the lives that Jesus have even been lost because of this. Father, we call out Christian nationalism for what it is. A self-serving, absolutely destructive 
force in our country. And Jesus, this morning, we repent of it. Forgive us for this. Forgive us for us falling, maybe many of us have, for falling into this trap, for falling into these beliefs. Forgive us for our pride, our ego, for the ways that we have hurt others and we haven't even realized we've done it with our words, our actions, our attitudes. Forgive us for the way that we have witnessed to say to the world, this is who you are when it is in many ways not at all who you are, Jesus. Forgive us for the hate in our hearts towards our neighbors, towards our leaders. Forgive us for the hate that we have towards those who do not look like us, who do not act like us, who do not believe like us. Forgive us, Jesus. Cleanse us of this sin. Thank you. May we be worthy in a little bit to receive your body and your blood. May we be worthy to continue to worship you as we are going to do now. May we be worthy to stand boldly in your presence only because, Jesus, we were willing to humble ourselves and repent. It's in your name that we pray and all of God's people said, Amen.